I love Baptism Sundays. It's the day that I'm absolutely 100% certain that God is real and alive and well in our world. And thank you for that amen. Thank you very much. There's nothing more beautiful than the sound of children in worship, and I'm glad that they're all here, here on, on this day. You know, the things that, that bring us joy and happiness in life are as varied as the human family itself. For some, there's nothing more joyful than going to a football game on a cool, crisp, clear autumn afternoon, tailgating with friends, cheering on the band, hoping against hope that the, the team does very well. And I think they did okay yesterday, last time I checked. I think they did just fine. For others, a perfect day is one spent at the symphony, surrounded by the beautiful sounds of Bach, Mozart, reminder of the way God creates through the power of music. Julie and I got a text yesterday, a week ago yesterday, from our son, Nate. He's our oldest. He texted out late on Saturday night and said, I've just been to the symphony. It was wonderful. I wrote back, who are you and where's our son? <laughs> it's kind of fun to watch them grow up. Moms and dads, they will faster than you realize. For someone else, though, happiness is found in the solitude of their garden tilling the soil, watching living things come to life. For others, it might be reading a great book or preparing a fine meal or taking the dogs on a walk or maybe all of the above. Are the things that bring happiness and joy are as diverse as the human family itself. But there's unity in our sorrow. There's unity in our grief. A week ago today, when all of our screens flashed the news that there'd been another shooting in another church. We were united across the country in grief and sorrow and anger, fear, worry, anxiety. We're united. Death is indeed the great uniter. Whenever we're faced with death, especially a tragic one, one that comes way too early in life. We, we wonder and we worry. We ask why and, and we seek solace. We long for something, for someone who can explain the meaning of life and the meaning of death. Why are they there? Several years ago, I was on a mission trip in South Africa. We were spending the weekend in a little village called Naps Hope, a tiny, very poverty-stricken place, but an unbelievable generosity of spirit. The pastor told me as we gathered for worship in their small chapel that the entire village had come to worship that day with the Americans. There were over 300 of us crammed into this small, unair-conditioned space. The service began at 10 o'clock in the morning, and it was over at 1. So just in case you think we go long today, trust me, we're not going that long. When the service was over, they fed us lunch, and then we were invited to a woman's home. The woman had experienced terrible loss that week. Her son had been killed in a bus rack. He was only 19 years old. They were having a prayer service in her house and she wanted us to come over and, and be with her. And we, we told the pastor, it feels like we're invading her space and this is her own personal grief and we shouldn't be there. And the pastor said, oh no, no, no. She would be so honored if you would come. She's already set up some chairs in her small home where each of you will be respected as guests of honor. Please come. And so we did. The language that is, that is spoken by most of the blacks in South Africa is the language of Kosa, 
and all the prayers and all the songs were in Kosa. But after about 45 minutes into the service, I looked at every member of our group and every one of us had tears streaming down our face. We didn't understand the words, but we spoke the language of grief. We knew the sorrow in the room. We knew the sadness she was experiencing. We're united in death. In the church in Thessalonica, there have been some deaths. This little congregation has experienced the loss of loved ones, of family members, of friends, and they're worried sick about the ones who have died. What will happen to them? Where will they go? Do you, have you heard these questions before? Will they go to heaven or are they going to find themselves in hell? In antiquity, there was a belief in, in something called Hades or Sheol. It wasn't a place of eternal torment. It was just a place of darkness, shadow, sorrow, sadness. Can you hear the Thessalonians wondering, is that where they've gone? You see, they had this belief that none of them would die before Jesus would return. They were certain of this. They were certain that Jesus' return was, was imminent. And so now they're wondering, what's happened to them? Where are they? Really, are their worries any different than ours? Are their concerns any less? You know, as a pastor, I'm asked about death all of the time. It's probably the number one question I'm asked more than anything else. And do you know which, which, which two groups ask me about it more than any others? Senior adults and teenagers. What happens? Where do we go? I was leading a Bible study several years ago, and there was a young man in this study. He's about 17, 18 years old, perhaps, at the end of the study, there was a Q&A time, a question and answer, and he stood up, he said, Glenn, where, where do we go? What happens? Do you know what happens when we die? I told him something I'd heard a wise pastor say once, that we can no more say exactly what happens when we die than a fetus can describe what will happen before it's born. No way. But we can trust that somehow, in some way, God will be there to welcome us into the arms of God's love. After that study was over, an 87-year-old man whose wife I had buried two weeks before came up to me and said, that's the most hopeful thing I've ever heard. The issue of death and, and questions that we ask around it are as ancient as the human race. The issue was real for Thessalonian, the Thessalonian Christians. Paul and the members of his church, as I said, believed that Jesus would return almost immediately and that he would come before they died, but now some of their members are dying and they're worried. They're scared to death. By the way, Paul continued to believe this throughout his life. We can read other letters in the New Testament where he says, Jesus is coming soon. He'll be here any moment, any day. It's coming. It's happening. It's kind of cool, isn't it, that Paul was completely wrong about that, but he still made it in the Bible. That's not a bad thing. And why is that true? Because of the deep pastoral care, especially in this letter to his friends in Thessalonica. The church members agree with Paul, and, and, and now they've lost some loved ones. Their anxiety is high. They're worried to death. They're scared that their friends are going to be left behind, forgotten, that they won't go with Jesus when Jesus comes to bring us all. Theologically, their beliefs are different from ours. But their fear, their anxiety, their worry, we understand. Their sense of being overwhelmed, we know. So Paul writes to end their worry. He uses this highly symbolic language, the language that Kate, Kate read for you a moment ago, 
to explain that no matter what happens, God is the God of all, that God is the God who will do everything possible to make sure that every one of us is brought into the eternal embrace of God's eternal love. Now, if you paid attention to the reading or if you're looking at it right now in your bulletin, you might be wondering about what I just said. After all, the verses seem quite different than that idea. In fact, some folks are inspired, some Christians are inspired to talk about something called the rapture. Have you heard about the rapture before? And nod your head if you have. Some of you have. It's an idea that somehow God, Jesus will come and be up in the sky and, and pull up all the good people, all the good Christians, and leave everybody else behind. By the way, that's not in the Bible, and that's not, that word rapture can't be found. But some folks use this text as a way of saying that's what it's about. But listen to the text again. If we're to read it literally, then it does sound like Jesus is going to float in the air. We're all going to rise up in there with him. There's going to be a loud trumpet playing somewhere, and then we all go off to heaven if we take it literally. But this is poetic language. You don't read a poem literally. You understand it at a completely different level. This is Paul's attempt to describe for them that God is the God of all, and in this sense, God will give God's love to everyone. For, for example, when it says that heaven will shout, it's a way for Paul to say, as you prayed in the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a way to say that someday, finally, heaven will come down. Maybe it will be with a shout. But the promise is beyond the literalness of the text. The promise is about God's will finally, finally being done on earth. Then there's that line in there about, about Jesus being in the air and us meeting him in the air. It's again a way for Paul to say to them, almost in a political kind of way, you think Caesar's in charge? You think he rules over all of these provinces here in the, in the ancient Near East? No, that's fine. Go ahead, think about that. But Jesus is Lord of all. God is the one who is above all, in all and through all. He is the one, God, this God is the one who created all that you see. It's a promise. It's a promise to these who have lost loved ones that love wins. What Paul's doing is recognizing their grief while also giving them hope. The hope they need to get through the day and indeed through their lives. He's giving them the same word that's spoken of in the book of Revelation, Revelation 21. In the end of all ends, there will be no more crying, no more weeping, no more mourning, no more death. For in Jesus Christ, all of creation will be renewed. All of creation will be renewed. By the way, I, I looked up the word all. Do, do you know what it means? It means all. <laughs> all of creation. That's the promise that gets my attention in the Bible. All of creation, all of you, all of us, every single person who's ever lived, we brought into the arms of God's eternal love. And yes, I know you might be thinking, well, what about the folks who have committed terrible, horrible, evil acts? I believe that God's love is greater than evil. And at the end of eternity, and as eternity continues on and on and on forever, love will indeed conquer evil in whatever form it is. Jürgen Moltmann is, is one of the greatest theologians of the last 100 years. He writes about this hope. He says, faith sees in the resurrection of Christ, not the eternity of heaven, but the future of the very earth on which his cross stands. Do you hear what he's saying? The cross of Jesus Christ is not about how to get into heaven and avoid hell. Absolutely not. The cross stands on earth today because it speaks to us about today and tomorrow and the future we have together. 
Christianity is not about how to get into heaven. It is about finding a life that matters in the here and now. When we stop worrying about the afterlife, we can live this one. We can see where love is needed in the world. Richard Rohr says it better than me. Christianity is not about avoiding punishment or gaining reward. It is about loving God and loving what God loves. And what God loves is the whole of creation. It's not about avoiding punishment or gaining reward. It's about loving what God loves. It is that profound and that simple. Paul wants him to hear this good news. At the end of the section that we read from, from this personal little note from Paul, I noted last week that it's almost like a love letter from a pastor to his parishioners. He wants them to know how much he cares for them. And then at the end of this passage of care, he writes, so encourage each other with these words. This is a central aspect of the church. It's what we just did with all of these parents. We promise to love the parents as much as we love the children to support them and care for them. It's an act of pastoral care when we invite these parents and their families, their children to be baptized. It's a reminder to us of our central calling as a church to provide care and nurture in times of joy and blessing and in times of sorrow and sadness. We, we are truly called to do what Jim Long, our minister of pastoral care, does every day. When there's someone who's hurting, reach out with a kind word. When there's someone who's broken, give them not very many words, but arms of love. When the church does that, our, our community is transformed. And when we're transformed, our neighbors are transformed. When our neighbors are transformed, the city is transformed. And when that continues on around the country, the next thing you know, the world is awash in grace. This is the central aspect of the church's ministry. But sometimes... Sometimes the church fails at this. Julie's father, Roy Pomeroy, my father-in-law, died a few years ago due to complications from Parkinson's disease. He was a tough old man, and I use the word tough intentionally. It was terrible to see what that disease did to him, though. It ruined his mind warped his body. I wish, you, I wish you could have known him. He served in the Navy, manned a, a, a gun on the side of a ship. He actually saw, he saw battle more than once in World War II. He was also a boxer. Then he became a farmer, ran his own farm, a carpenter, finally became a contractor, but did most of the work himself. Roy was the kind of guy who could put two or three pieces of drywall, I think I'm saying that right, on his back and climb a ladder while holding them and climb that ladder and then slap them down on wherever he needed to be next. Just a tough, hardworking, gotta be the hardest working man I, I ever saw in my life. Julie told me that when we were dating that he, he liked me because I was a basketball player, so I was a jock, so that was okay, so I was acceptable. But somewhere in the back of Roy's mind, I knew that he knew that he was pretty sure he could take me out anytime. Well, we gathered in a little church in Eastern Oregon, about three and a half hours past uh, east, of, east of Portland. I knew the theology of the church was different from the ones that I had served and been in. But I, as I said earlier in the service, we're united in our grief and our sorrow, and I was sure that, well, I was sure that that's what we'd focus upon. 
They invited me to read scripture as a pastor, and I was happy to do so. We sang a hymn. There was a prayer, scripture reading. And then the homily, the sermon began. For about a minute, we learned about Roy serving in the Navy, his love for his wife, Betty, his love for his family. And then for about 20 minutes, we were given the recipe for how to avoid the punishment of hell. For about 20 minutes, we were told how to punch our ticket for heaven. Hardly a word about this great man, not even a word about the grief in the room, the sadness that we were experiencing. Right on the front row, right there, right on the front row, I'm sitting next to my wife and her two sons. The three of them are weeping because they're Julie's father, their grandfather, is right here in a casket, and there's hardly a word. There's not a word spoken about grief and sorrow and sadness. Nothing. Instead, some nonsense about how to avoid hell as though it exists. We didn't name the grief. We didn't celebrate his life. He loved his family. His children, his wife, his grandchildren loved him. Oh, he wasn't, he wasn't perfect but he worked hard to care for them. He served his country. The service was over and just a few of us, it was a private, a private one, drove out to the graveside for the burial. The only aspect of that burial was the honor guard, the military honor guard that was there. Perhaps you've seen the ceremony before. I, I, as a pastor, I've, I've, been, I've probably seen it a couple of dozen times or more but now it was for somebody that I knew and respected and admired and loved. It was such a sacred thing. The flag was carefully folded. This young man in the honor guard looking perfect in his sharply put together uniform stood in front of Roy's widow, took that flag. He got down, he got down on one knee he presented it to her as a note of gratitude from the United States of America for his service, for his life. It was as though the Holy Spirit had taken over that moment. It was as though somehow we were reminded of this great one and the love that he had and the life that he lived. And then somewhere in the distance, a trumpet began to play. It was taps. It was a sound of heaven. It was a note of God's grace, of God's love, of the hope that indeed this one that we loved and loved so well was being received in the arms of God's very love. The Holy Spirit took over. What did Paul write? So encourage each other. He wants the people in this ancient Greek church to realize that the occasion of death is a, is a time when the church must care for its members. That was true now, then, and it is true now. We're all required to pay attention to this. We grieve, though, so we can hope. We pay attention to our sorrow so that we can look forward to the day that is coming. Hope is not pie in the sky, by and by. Hope, real hope, is centered on the, on the idea that the end is not the end, but a beginning. The promise of Christ's coming is seen in the gift of God's hope for a better day. If we hope, we will challenge the status quo of the world. 
our love for one another, our love for the world, will be the pathway that sets us free to tear down the walls that divide, to bring together the human family through the power of God's undying universal grace and love given to all. When that happens, when that finally happens, then the prayer we prayed earlier will be true. Thy will done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.